WNRI's Upfront. The opinions expressed represent those only of the panel and callers and do not reflect the views of WNRI and its owners. Telephone lines are now open at 7690600. And now, let's join the Upfront panel. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Upfront program for this Friday. I'm Roger Bouchard here Monday through Friday. And on Friday, we have um, Bob Martin, the real estate guy, uh, join us uh, for our real estate question of the week. And on Friday, we have one of our state reps or senators uh, join us. And today, Brian Newberry is joining us, and he's in studio. And so that you know that he's here, let me uh, turn on his microphone and say hello to him before I ignore him for uh, seven to eight more, more minutes. So good morning, sir. Are these like new, uh, new microphones? You yes, these are specially designed so that um, you do not catch the uh, coronavirus in any way. Ah, uh, okay. Well, Even though you're... you're spawning you're the... new industries. Oh, yeah. We, um, we try to protect our guests. Thank you for being here. We'll be with you in a few moments, all right? You can, uh, you can check your email again. I always look forward to that. All right. Data. Thank you. Brian, in a few moments, let's press this button and uh, say hello to Robert on, the, uh, on our live line. Are you there, Robert? Yes, I am, Mr. Bouchard. Is that what your mother called you uh, when you were in trouble, Robert? No, you know, no, no one's ever called me Robert. No? Not even <laughs> no, Mom? It's surprising. Even if I introduce myself that way, it just ends up calling, coming out Bob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I don't know why. You're definitely a Bob, not a Robert. Huh? Guys, I never did anything wrong, so there was no reason for me. Ah, uh, yes, I understand you were the perfect child, yes. <laughs> All right, as you are the perfect real real estate guy, and here is our real estate question of the week, and uh, are you ready, sir? I hope so. Okay, it says here, I'm selling my house that has a drilled well and septic. Both are working fine. A few years ago, the town put water and sewer in the street. We chose not to connect. Now I'm told by the buyer that his lender won't give him a mortgage unless I connect to the public water and sewer supply. My system is fine and passed the home inspection. Do I have to connect to sell my home? What do you say, Mr. Real Estate Professional? Well, there is a uh, yes and no. Um, my, I'm gathering that the buyer of this property is getting an FHA or VA mortgage. And the FHA and, and VA require that if water and sewer is available, regardless of uh, whether the septic and the well are functioning properly, that the um, in, in order to get the mortgage, it has to be connected. That's an FHA rule. It's been around a long time. Hopefully he's not too far into the process because whoever he was using to advise him or on you know both sides, the buyer and the seller should have first thing they should have checked, and <clears throat> we always do that. Um, he should have known also, and you know it doesn't occur to sellers um, when they when the town puts water and sewer in the street, uh, particularly sewer, um, they're assessed whether they tie in or not in most cities and towns. So he's probably been paying a fee, uh, not a connection fee, not a usage fee. Uh, so yes, uh, if the water and sewer is in the street. As a condition of the mortgage, not any particular state regulations or whatnot, um, in order for that person to get the mortgage, they would have to connect. If someone were using a, let's say, a conventional mortgage that's not VA, FHA, that issue does not exist. So it probably is based on the type of mortgage that he applied for. Unfortunately, it comes up lots of times late in the session. Uh, where, you know, it surprises someone. Uh, that being said, there is, um, and I haven't, we haven't run into that in about a year, so I'm, I'm going on where the regs were then, and I believe they're still accurate. There is a hardship a regulation. Uh, I'm not sure they call it just that. However, if uh, the buyer were to petition or work with the seller, and if the cost of connecting exceeds a certain percentage of the purchase price of the property, it's considered a hardship. Uh, so I believe it's somewhere around 4, 4%. So if they're selling the property for 200 If the seller were to get an estimate, and that would be for each one, in this case he's got well and septic. The last one we did was simply well. It was about $10,000 to connect. Um, that percentage turned out to be about 7000 
we got a couple of estimates, um, and we were able to prove to the lender, we had the seller, we were able to pr prove to the lender that the cost exceeded that percentage, and the buyer claimed the hardship, and the seller claimed the hardship, saying the cost would be prohibitive, and as long as that, in this case, the well was kicking out all kinds of water. Um, it was a great well, and uh, we were able to put the deal together. But um, it, it, it's under a hardship regulation. Um, they should That buyer should check with his FHA lender uh, to make sure that, um, one, that's still in effect, and two, that they adhere to that, because sometimes they have things called overlays, and a lender can be more strict than the lender. Uh, but that's, that's the case there. Um, and it's unfortunate that a lot of times it doesn't show up, particularly if you have maybe somebody newer or something that wasn't aware of it. Um, but we always look, if, if somebody's got well in water, or, or either one, and it, it goes either one. Uh, so if he was connected to sewer and he had a well or he had a connected to public water, uh, the, other, the other aspect would be to check with the city or town. Um, the one that I have in mind, the last one that I personally encountered, um, there was low water pressure. It was in North Smithfield um, with Woonsocket water, and I believe it's been corrected since then. But uh, there was a moratorium on further home connections in the area because uh, the pipes just weren't locked. The water line wasn't didn't have enough pressure. So once we were able to get a letter from the water department attesting to that, uh, we were able to go through the sale. But well it's the lender that's driving this, not not any state regulation. I don't want to take too much time for Mr. Newberry, but just got a phone call in, a phone call, an email in here. Hey, could you answer very briefly, when somebody asks you about the school in the town in which, or city in which you're buying a piece of real estate, do you just give an arbitrary, off-the-cuff answer as to the quality of schools, or do you have some kind of a document that you can quantify what you're saying about the school? district that uh, that property is in we really don't make any subjective comments uh, there is there is data available um, and we refer them to the data that's been developed such as you know drop-off rates college and you know there's plenty of information out there so we treat that <clears throat> similarly to someone says well you know how's the crime in this area we say call a call the Woonsocket Police Department. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we... You just talk about the house, right? We just talk about the house, not not about, you know, the, the area mm -hmm. and whatnot. Okay. Um, and, and that's the safe thing to do. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Always appreciate it. Thank you for answering two questions for us today. Okay. Very okay. good. Okay. Bye-bye. Robert Martin. Oh, excuse me. Bob Martin, associated with Crossroads Real Estate Group right here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And uh, he'll be uh, more than happy to chat with you about any real estate matter. All right, we're going to have a quick um, message here from one of our sponsors, and then uh, we will begin our interview with State Representative Brian Newberry. Kayer Kosher, your accounting, financial planning, tax preparation, and business consulting services of Woonsocket and Warwick. 600 Cass Avenue, Woonsocket, Jefferson Boulevard, and Warwick. Call us locally at 766-8100. Remember, outside of the tax season, we do planning for business, individuals, and families. We're Kayer Kosher. We're certified public accountants. Again, our local number, 766-8100. And remember, having Kayer Kosher to consult with on your personal financial situation is like having all the right answers. You're listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. All right, uh, Brian Newberry has joined us. He's uh, part of the rotation of uh, state senators and state reps uh, that come by and uh, chat with us about uh, the issues of the day. Last week, it was Senator Roger Pickard who announced that he's running for re-election. Are you running for re-election? Let me turn your microphone on. Are you running for re-election? <laughs> Having the microphone on is helpful. Yes, I am. <laughs> Was it a tough decision, or, or you, you enjoyed doing this kind of stuff? Or? No, I, I enjoyed doing it. Um, it wasn't really a decision to make. I, I knew I was going to. So, This uh, General Assembly session that hasn't happened. Um, so here we are. Uh, we're on June the 5th. And do you actually see yourself seated in your chair sometime before the end of the session, which incidentally could could go into uh, July or August, or you, do you even see a General Assembly session? Well, there's two... Okay, so we have to... We have a constitutional duty to pass a balanced budget by June 30. All right? 
Uh, if we don't, we're not the federal government. We don't shut down, you know, Congress. There's that Kabuki theater they do every couple of years. We don't do that. We just continue with the budget from the year before. But obviously the budget we're operating under is, is not realistic with the present situation. So I expect we will pass a budget. What I also expect is going to happen is that the Speaker, the Senate President, and the Governor, and the fiscal staffs will get together with the finance chairs, sit down behind closed doors, come up with some kind of budget that looks not so I mean good. I, whatever they come up with will be bad. It's just the situation. Um, come up with something that will pass muster as a constitutional document. We'll spring it on the General Assembly, uh, probably follow the usual seven-day waiting period that required under the rules, and then, this, and then the leadership will go to all the, the members, Democratic members, and say, listen, I know this is terrible, but we have no choice. It's the last minute. You've got to vote for it. Just please vote and get out of here. That's what I think is going to happen. I know it's a very cynical statement I'm making, but the reality is that any budget we pass under the current fiscal situation is going to be a mess, no matter what your views uh, and you have to get two-thirds majority to pass it. So if I think they're just going to spring something at the last second and try to twist everybody's arm to vote yes and then get out of Dodge and they're all going to run for re-election. That's what I think is going to happen. I could be wrong, but that's what I think is going to happen. Where's the money going to come from? I have no idea. Like I said, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's a mess. I mean, this, this shutdown, you know, for, for whatever other good reasons you may have done it, has destroyed the fiscal, you know, basis in the state i mean one third of our not one third the, the, our third largest source of revenue is gambling which has always been an issue right but it's reality twin river has been closed since when since march i don't know what's going to reopen I, I don't know if it's reopened now i have no idea but it, the point is when you shut this down weekend this weekend okay yeah. by invitation though well, yeah. meaning that if you uh you're registered in their computer system as somebody that has a busy uh, gambling schedule there, they'll... they'll in other words, if you spend a lot of money there, you can... Yeah, that's another way of saying it. No, but I, no, I get that. But, I mean, point simply is, that alone would blow a hole in the budget. Never mind all the sales tax revenue. I mean, everybody who stayed home is spending less money. I, I mean, me personally, I spent a lot less money on gasoline and, and parking. I mean, think of the money you take from the gas tax, right? Right there. I mean, no one's con- contributing as much in tax money as they used to when you have economic activity. So... I have no idea what the budget's going to look like. I, I don't. I mean, I, it's a disaster. And it's not just Rhode Island, by the way. Every state, country is facing this situation. It's varied degrees. States with better fiscal footings to begin with can weather the storm better than we can, but uh, it's a mess. And by the way, the other thing I think is going on is they think they're pleading, begging Washington to bail them out. Um, we know that's what's going on. That's one of the fights down in Washington, D.C. Rhode Island's not the only state begging for that. And I have no idea. I can't tell you what's going to happen to Washington. But if they don't bail us out, that's, that's going to be an issue, too. I've been following uh, one of my self-imposed tasks is every day, like this afternoon, I will plop myself down in one of our studios and listen to the governor's news briefing. I haven't missed one, so I've heard a lot of uh, a lot of different things. And so I'm going to talk about um, how we're going to balance the budget. The other day, uh, I think it was maybe a week ago Thursday, um, one of the reporters said... Of the $1.25 billion that has been um, uh, that has come into the state and, and we've already had the general treasurer recognize that the money's been deposited. So we've got the $1.25. How much have we spent on the coronavirus to um, set up all these tents and, and testing and so forth? And the answer was um, 10%. Uh, $125 million or thereabouts. So one of the reporters said, what do you, where's the other 90%? Are you saving it uh, to balance uh, the budget? Because um, if we don't get the second stimulus round, uh, then the rest of the money that's left that hasn't been spent, incidentally, um, might be uh, the answer to balancing the budget. Now, that's what I heard from a news briefing. Have you heard anything different or well, parallel? A couple things to that. First of all, if the money can legally only be spent on virus-related expenses, then you can't just use it to balance the budget. But as we all know, governments are better than anybody doing creative accounting. For example, I don't know if we still are, but you know we rented the convention center, right? We've been renting the convention center at least from the beginning for, for months now. Now, the convention center, as we all know, loses money. That's always been a diff- different political issue. Um, it loses money. You can make arguments about whether it's an investment in the community or not. But the bottom line is it's a money loser for the state. But by renting it for COVID-19 expenses, even though we haven't actually needed to use it, we are able to take federal funds and apply it to basically a state expenditure that we would have 
Anyway, uh, I imagine there's going to be a lot of attempts to do that. Anything that, that the, the governor and, the, and you know, the, the fiscal people can actually justifiably claim at all is related to the virus, they will use. So when you say they can use the balance of budget, I don't think they can legally just say, here, here's $800 million. We're going to plug the hole. But they can say, well, we're going to use $40 million for this because it's sort of kind of maybe sort of related to the pandemic. That's, that's my guess. There's going to be a lot of that. Which, you know, I mean, uh, look. The first thing we have to look out for is the state of Rhode Island, right, as Rhode Island legislators. Whatever you think of the federal stimulus money and, and, and what's going on in Washington, from our perspective, we need to do something to help the state. So I, I'm not being critical of that when I say that, but I think that's what's going to happen. Well, there's no question about it uh, that uh, the $1.25 billion was for uh, coronavirus expenses. However, in those same news briefings, it's been suggested uh, that the rules for accepting the money could be changed uh, for states that are trying to balance their budget. Now, the president is not too crazy about this because a lot of the states that have unbalanced budgets, I know this is going to be hard to believe, are states with Democratic uh, gov- governors. Right? Roger, that is shocking to me. I, I, <laughs> I knew you didn't know that. I didn't know that. Right, wow. well, I know it's one of the reasons why you come here, because uh, you gather... There's uh, a reason I've only voted for one budget my entire time in the General Assembly. I voted for one right. in 2015. I voted against every other one. So, yes, I know. But even though um, this uh, money is restricted, uh, there may be some um, some lifting of the restrictions so that we can... In yeah. fact, well, that's that's the battle being played out in Washington. Yeah. That's what I was talking about earlier. But my point is, you can't rely on that from a planning perspective. Mm-hmm. If it happens, merits aside, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, you have to plan as though it's not going to happen until you have a definitive answer. This is the upfront program. If you just join us, um, you probably hear me uh, from time to time. I'm Roger. Today, Brian Newberry, uh, District 48. North Smithfield uh, and a little slice there of Boroughville is here with us. Uh, let me pull up his uh, name on my little iPad here. Um, so, what kind of uh, what kind of committees do you sit on that you're not going to right now? All right, can you you tell <laughs> well, us what you'd normally be doing if you were doing something? Well, okay, first of all, as you know, I was minority leader for six years. So when I stepped out from that position. At that point, this is going to sound a little strange, but I don't really care what committees I sit on. What I mean by that is people have different interests in different committees. So I always told my successor, in this case, Blake Filippi, who does the committee assignments, I said, put me on whatever anybody else doesn't want to do. All right. <laughs> okay. So so this term, I've been on oversight, which is interesting. Uh, I will talk about that in That's a second. That's a good committee. Yeah, I know. I know it is. We're going yeah. to talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, and I'm also on labor, which is actually a very important committee, but it doesn't meet very often. It deals with highly contentious issues, and labor issues are not something that's in the forefront of this whole situation. So labor hasn't met, but we, we actually, if I believe we actually finished hearing all the legislation that had been submitted in labor before all this happened. So there's no reason for labor to be meeting. We wouldn't be meeting anyway right now. Uh, oversight is an interesting question because oversight to me, I have always thought that the House Oversight Committee is completely underutilized. I've thought this for years. Um, and this is not a knock on the current governor. Uh, I just think that part of the job of a legislature is to truly oversee the executive branch. Uh, in fact, Oversight Committee was created when the separation of powers constitutional amendment went through back about mm, 15 years ago or so. And the reason it was created was because in the past, the justification was a lot of the state's boards and commissions had legislators sitting on them. As we all know, that was removed. And so then you have to have an obligation to oversee all the gubernatorial appointees and executive branch. If I were the Speaker of the House, I would have oversight meeting year-round, once a week, you know, so give or take. Uh, and I would have a routine, uh, I want to say investigation, because I'm not trying to suggest anything wrong, but I would have a routine uh, inquiry of every major department, except finance. I let the finance committee deal with the, the budgetary stuff. But, uh, you know, have DOT in once every three months to explain what's going on. Just so the public has a better sense of what's going on, so the legislators ourselves have a better sense of what's going on. That has not happened at all. No speaker, not just the current speaker, has shown any interest in doing anything like that. Instead, oversight has been turned into, in my view, uh, uh, I say a sideshow, but like we'll pick one issue. Um, you know, UHIP was an important issue, but that was the only thing it looked at for like a year and a half, right? And it did a good job with that, but that's all it did. Like, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. In fact, we could have subcommittees of oversight, like finance does. Why can't you have a subcommittee to oversee transportation oversight? A subcommittee to, I, I, there's so much more that could be done with it. So, not to ramble on, but to get back to my point, 
we, being the House Republicans, have asked in the last few months repeatedly to have oversight bring the, the administration in to discuss all the efforts being taken, particularly with respect to nursing homes, because that's where most of the deaths are, not just Rhode Island, nationwide. Okay? Why? And we've been rebuffed because the leadership has no interest in having anything really happen beyond the minimum. So, Oversight, um, we have a call awaiting, but on the oversight, um, wouldn't uh, the uh, leasing of the convention center, I think they leased it for six months or so, uh, would that be uh, the kind of thing that oversight would, would look into, actually taking state money and putting it back into state money? Yeah, I mean, the whole point of an oversight committee, whether it's in Congress or state legislature, is to shine light on activities. That's the whole point. There may be nothing wrong. I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong. But let the public know. Because here's the problem. Reporters can ask questions, but reporters can also be rebuffed easily, right? They can be ignored. It's really hard to ignore legislators when they have the power to demand stuff from you if, if, you know, if, if they're odd to something. But there seems to be no interest whatsoever under the current leadership of the General Assembly to use House oversight for anything other than, at this point, almost show. We had, you know, the transport, the, the last year, all we've done, all we've done the last year in oversight was the, um, the you know, the transportation company to bring the folks, or the Medicaid folks and so on to get their medical, I forget the name of the company at this point. I forgot too, but I know what you're talking it about. Became, it became a grandstanding show. It was absurd. You go there and Both a few right. people monopolize the time and rant and rave and it, the whole thing was ridiculous. It was a waste of time. And it was a real issue, by the way, but it was not handled well. Our caller, we'll press the magic button, see what uh, somebody has to say. Do you have a question? Yes. Um, Go ahead. Um, we got Pelosi, Schumer, Schiff, and Comey. They're all in this General Assembly. And they haven't done a damn thing except knock Trump down. That's their whole agenda. And as for the young man that just died under awful circumstances, his people in nursing homes who have passed away and their loved ones couldn't get in to see them or hold their hand or say goodbye because of the COVID ID. Yet you see this guy, they're all over the place. They want the whole world over. So nobody, there's nobody, nothing in life is fair. That's it. All right. <coughs> Thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Basically, I think um, she's um, frustrated locally and nationally. In other words, um, uh, you can't go to the nursing home to see a loved one, um, and the national attention is on somebody that maybe we don't even don't even know. Uh, and and I think with that national story going on with the Minneapolis situation, a lot of people don't understand it uh, totally. I, I know that. What? Well, go ahead. I, no, I think I think actually the caller what jumped out at me because it's something I was just reading about before I came in here. I've been thinking about the last several days. So when the pandemic started. We were told that we're going to shut everything down to you know flatten the curve, and and, and you t- and it made sense, and most people were willing to accept that. Okay, um, I don't think people expected it to go on as long as it has. It has loosened up more some more loose in some places than others. Okay, all right, fine. At this point, you've got people saying you still can't. Some places you still can't go to church. Some places you can go to church at ten percent or twenty five percent capacity. You can do this. You can't. You can go to a restaurant. All right, people will even accept that to a point if they believe it's actually for the greater good, all right? Mm-hmm. But then you see protests, justifiable protests, by the way, but you see, I'm not talking about the riots, I'm talking about the actual, you know, peaceful protests. You see protests, and then you get governors asked, like the guy from New Jersey was quoted the other day, literally saying that it was more important for people to protest than to go to church, therefore he wasn't going to break up the protests, but he still won't let people go to church or go to church beyond certain capacity. And people look at that and they go, wait a minute. Either it's safe to do both or it's dangerous to do both. You can't pick and choose. So what's happening is you've got governors, and particularly in certain states. Minnesota is a prime example because that's where George Floyd was murdered, okay? They had his memorial service yesterday in Minnesota. It was a big deal, you can imagine, right? Lots of people came. The governor of Minnesota was there. Jesse Jackson was there. Huge crowds were there. And I was just, again, reading this morning, people in Minnesota saying, well, wait a second. I live in a rural area, and I couldn't have a funeral for my grandfather. But we're letting thousands of people or hundreds of people, whatever the big crowd, attend this service. Like, why? You know, they're not not opposed to the big memorial service. They're saying, but if you can do that, why can't we have normal life back? And that's when people start to, to break. People will only listen and obey the government if they trust that the people making these decisions are doing it for the right reasons and are not doing it arbitrarily or just to 
extend or just use their power because they enjoy it. And we've seen it all over the country. We've seen some governors act responsibly, and we've seen some governors act like fools. That's, that's the reality. And people living in states where governors who act like fools are getting angrier and angrier and angrier. Pandemic. That's not good. Contradictions. <laughs> right. I can see uh, that was uh, well uh, well said. But uh, on the other hand, I've heard a few people on, on our local talk shows actually say a very similar thing using different examples. But uh, the, there is a contradiction here of, uh, of yeah, one thing is okay, one isn't okay. It's all arbitrary. It is arbitrary. Yeah. We're going to be back in a moment. This is the Upfront Program. The wastewater treatment plant of the city of Woonsocket is reminding customers not to flush wipes of any kind into the system. And although the packaging might say flushable, they should never be flushed down the toilet. Only flush the three P's, poop, pee, and paper. Flushable wipes are not truly flushable. They might go down, but they do not break up like regular toilet paper. If you do use paper towels or wipes, throw them into your trash cans. Remember, wipes of any kind can clog our sewer systems and even harm your home's plumbing. The practice of flushing wipes is causing problems at the treatment plant and unnecessary expenses to the city of Woonsocket. This announcement presented by the Woonsocket Wastewater Treatment Facility. There's a church nearby where members are kind and friendly. May we invite you to attend services at the Cumberland Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Services are now available on Facebook or Skype on the Internet. Call 658-2748 for information on seeing us online. It's a church where you can hear the gospel, believe in Christ, repent, confess, and be baptized. Join us this week for our prayer and Bible study, Wednesday at 7 p.m. and Sunday services at 1 p.m. Our sermons are are understandable to grow you in faith and available online. Again, we are the Cumberland Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, inviting you on your journey of salvation, with services now available on Facebook and Skype. Services conducted by Pastor Marcus Warren. And uh, Pastor uh, Warren, also uh, because of uh, entering Phase 2 here in Rhode Island, and this church is in Cumberland, uh, they are permitted to have 20%, uh, 25% occupancy. And so uh, there will be uh, services uh, this weekend, this Sunday, uh, that will allow certain number of uh, their congregation members in the church, 25% of uh, the membership. So um, that is the good news that the Cumberland Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is operational again, but uh, only uh, 25%. But we wanted to make that announcement. Our guest is uh, Brian Newberry. We'll be back uh, chatting with him in a moment because we have some questions. I don't know if he's going to like them, but um, we're going to ask him anyway, see if we can get an answer out of him, maybe getting him in a little trouble. Champs Liquors for Keyway, 481 Clinton Street, Woonsocket, still on sale, Tisdale Wines from California. In six varieties, including a Pinot Grigio, Merlot, Cabernet, White Zinfandel, Chardonnay, and a Moscato. And yes, it's still two bottles for $10. Share in life's endless possibilities with Tisdale Vineyards of California. Quality wine. And the sale goes on on Kettle Vodka, $32.99 for the 1.75 liter bottle. And Bacardi Rum, the 1.75 liter bottle is only $23.99. And we continue the best price in town on Bud and Bud Light, 30 pack, $25.50 plus tax. Champs Liquors for Keyway does high rise and senior complex delivery service too. Champs Liquors for Keyway, Clinton Street, Woonsocket. Super Dupa Food Truck is ready to serve you at 1265 Menden Road, Woonsocket. All food is prepared by David and his wife, Brenda, a Johnson & Wales graduate. Try our delicious homemade soup, our slow-roasted meat sandwiches, or check our weekly specials. No waiting when you call ahead, 663-7309. It's Super Dupa every Tuesday through Friday, 3 to 6, Saturday, 2 to 7, and Sunday, 2 to 6. Next to the Dollar General, Menden Road, Woonsocket. Super duper food truck. Uh, Friday operation, 3 o'clock this afternoon. Saturday and Sunday, 2 o'clock. I'm looking at the, um, at the menu here. How about those uh, chili cheese dogs for 4 bucks a piece? I understand they are very, very popular. And um, also we have um, the buffalo chicken quesadilla with uh, fresh blue cheese on it, 10 bucks At the super duper food truck, Menden Road. Right here in Woonsocket, R.I. 
And then on the Champs Liquors uh, ad, I wanted to mention they still have uh, door service so that you will go to the door and ask for your um, Tinsdale wine, two bottles for 10 bucks, and they'll bring it right to you, and you can pay right there at the door. That's Champs Liquors for Keyway. Now, let me uh, check my little um, message board here. And I got one more ad, and I want to tell you that uh, K's will be open today for lunch. You can go inside now at K's. You can go outside to their beautiful dining uh, area, and um, you can uh, do takeout, too. We're getting there together. You've been waiting for us, and we've been waiting for you. And now, outside dining and inside dining is available at K's. It isn't like it used to be yet, but we believe it's coming. We all want to do this the right way and the safe way. So, as we slowly make our way back to the normal, consider joining us. As we have taken all the precautions to make your dining experience as comfortable and pleasant as possible. And we're so grateful for your support that you've given us during the takeout phase only. And while takeout continues at K's, we now invite you to join us at our newly created outdoor dining area or in our reconfigured inside dining room. Yes, the same great K standard menu and a lot of new add-ons to enhance your dining experience. Check out our Facebook page for daily updates. There are so many great dining experiences available in the Woonsocket area and we hope that you'll come in and see us soon at K's, 1013 Cass Avenue. Call 762-9675 to make a reservation or place a takeout order. To all our valued customers over the years, a big thank you from Dave and the staff at K's. All right, let's get back to the Upfront program. You're listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. All right, let's let's take off the gloves here and give uh, Brian Newberry run for his money here on topics. Um, so, Providence Journal. I'm going to read a few headlines. Raw emotions and discussion of equality outside the Rhode Island State House. Led by uh, Providence Democratic Representative Anastasia Williams. Do you know her? Okay, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I know you do. So tell us about her. Um, I, no, we get along well, actually. People might be surprised you follow politics. I don't, you know, we, we disagree on a lot of things, but we would agree on things more than people would realize. Um, you know, she's, her style is a contrast to mine, let's put it that way. But mm-hmm. on a personal level, we get along fine. She delivered an emotional speech uh, that did not satisfy the demand for a change from uh, a handful of activists who joined two dozen lawmakers in a week when protests and riots have spread across the nation. One of the, uh, one of the persons at the rally was uh, Nicholas Mattiello, the House Speaker. And, and he, um, according to, and we had somebody on the scene, so this is not secondhand information, he was not received very, very well. Now, I realize that's not the body of the General Assembly. He... He gets his power from votes within. But um, uh, where does he stand in terms of uh, surviving <laughs> the election, if he has a challenger, and surviving uh, the leadership role? Well, he, he does have a challenger. Uh, he's got Alan Fung's wife, Barbara Fenton Fung, is running against him. So that's going to be a pretty formidable challenge in the general election for sure. Um I'd, I'd never comment on Democratic primary party politics because it's, you know, I'm not a Democrat and I'm not going to speculate about things. So I have no idea on that front. Um, I, you know, I haven't talked to Nick in, I don't know, three months since all this started, really. But um, last I knew, he wants to run and come back as speaker. So at the end of the day, it's a Democratic majority state. Uh, even if, even in the best case scenario, we're not going to have a Republican majority after the next elections. Be realistic, obviously. So he's, if he gets the support of uh, his caucus, he'll be back as speaker. I, what I can tell you is that there's, this is not news. This is not new. I'm not revealing any secrets. There's been fractions, fissures, whatever term you want to use, uh, within the Democratic caucus uh, for a good, since about 2017, 18. He's been speaker since 2014. First few years, it was pretty unified. Democrats are pretty unified. But as time goes on, any leader loses support just by nature. Even the best, you know, they lose support because they disappoint this person or that person. At the same time, you've got this sort of internal political civil war in the state Democratic Party. I always joke, there's, there's not two political parties in Rhode Island. There's three. Uh, there's the Republicans and there's two groups that call themselves Democrats. And each thinks the other one is not really Democrats. 
Uh, and you see that playing out the state house constantly. You're going to see it play out in Democratic primaries all over the state. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't get involved in Woonsocket politics, but I know all the players. Obviously, because I represent North Smithfield next door, and I, my son goes to Beacon. I'm here all the time. Um, Mike Morin just stepped down. I don't know who's going to run, but I'll be very shocked if it's only one person. Now, I bet you there'll be a primary here, and it'll be the two warring factions of the Democratic Party, and it'll be it'll be a proxy war, and that will be going on all over the state. When you talk about the two Democratic factions, uh, we identify uh, one of the factions as the the progressive faction. Is that one of the factions, or or are we talking about something completely different? Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk more broadly, this is my personal opinion. I think nationally, the Democratic Party nationally has, in the last 10, 15 years, moved much further to the left than it was. Put this way, the Bill Clinton of 1992 and 1996, you know... um, uh, abortion safe, legal, and rare, welfare reform, balanced budgets. That Bill Clinton would be thrown out of today's Democratic Party, okay? I mean, I'm talking about the politics, not you know, other issues. He'd be, he wouldn't even be allowed in today's Democratic Party. So nationally, it's gone to the left. But that change hasn't happened yet in Rhode Island, but it's happening. I've served in the General Assembly for about a decade. And the Democrats who I got in my first term, there were, a, there were a few Democrats who would be considered particularly liberal. There's those, some of those folks are still there. They're still liberal, but they are the ones who know how to work within the institution. They were not bomb throwers, right? Now we've got this whole new generation of people running and winning office in the state, the General Assembly as Democrats, who are very far to the left and unafraid and unabashed about it. And, that, you know, I don't agree with them politically, but that's a style thing, too. And you've got this sort of old-school, more old-fashioned, more conservative Democrat. Not Republicans, but conservative Democrat. And they are at war with each other. And you can see it. So I, I'm not, this is not some deep secret I'm revealing here. It's, it's all over the newspapers and the press. And it has been for several years. Isn't difficult, not at all, for me to understand. Because, um, so here I am sitting across from you. I don't know uh, all the years we've been chatting. I'm, I'm a registered Democrat who... I mean, I do that because my mother wanted me to be a Democrat who who's lost in the Democratic Party. I mean, I do not. I'm a registered Democrat and there's hardly a Democrat that I approve of that has an ideology that follows my my thoughts. What do you do with a guy like me? I wish that the people who I serve with and a lot of the people I know who are Democrats and who still vote Democrat but don't actually believe in what the Democratic Party stands for, which is flip the switch and change the registration. I was raised in a Democratic family. Mm-hmm. I became a Republican in 1993. Well, not technically. I didn't change my registration, but my mindset I became a Republican in 1993. Um, that, a lot of people are doing that because the Democratic Party now is not the De- it's not even, like I say, it's not the Democratic Party of the 90s. Never mind the Democratic Party of, you know, my parents, uh, grandparents. You know, it's changed. And, but the Republican Party's changed too. I mean, it's, both parties change over time. But a label, people shouldn't vote a label. They should say which which person actually represents what they think most of the time. You know, I don't expect someone to agree with me 100 percent of the time, but if you agree with me 60 percent of the time, you should be voting for me, right? Regardless of what the label is. Thank you for that advice. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, back to uh, Anastasia uh, Williams and her speech yesterday, and she talked about syst- uh, here. It says systematic racism, um, and. I was wondering uh, whether, um, whether you know, you're in North Smithfield, Boroughville. You're kind of away from uh, urban uh, setting. You're not uh, in Woonsocket every day or, or Pawtucket or, or Providence. Um, but what is she, you know, does she have a point? And, and one of her points was if you name a Supreme Court justice of color, you're going to solve Rhode Island's uh, issues. Um, well, those are two different Those oh, are two different topics. Right. Well, they are two different topics, but they're both... First of all, as, as really? a lawyer who appears before the Supreme Court from time mm-hmm. to time, I'm not going to comment right now on oh. who should be named. Oh. But, I, but I, don't think, I don't think that uh, someone's skin color should be relevant to whether they should be appointed to a judgeship. That aside. Um, well, she's making that argument. No, I know she's always made that argument. That, oh. That's, a, that's a, a, a pet peeve of hers. I, I, I know. But, okay. but I'm talking more, more broadly, though. I don't disagree with her in a sense. There's, look, racism exists in this country. Uh, racism has always existed in this country. I don't think racism is ever going to go away. In a sense, I, my personal feeling is that racism is sort of a, a human condition. It's sort of a defense mechanism, that, you know, sort of an evolutionary defense mechanism. People are afraid of the other. And that's true not just, you know, in the United States between whites and blacks or because of slavery. 
That's true elsewhere. Japan, if anybody knows Japanese history, Japan was one of the most racist societies in the entire world before World War II. Okay? They thought they were the supreme above all others. That was, a whole, that was their whole rationale for trying to conquer all of Asia. They thought they were the top dog in Asia, and they thought they were the best of the world. I've personally known about examples of racial profiling that have happened in North Smithfield. It happens. And so when someone who is not white gets up in this country and says that white people have an advantage, they are correct. There's no doubt about that. Now, how deeply that goes, how much of an effect that it has on everyday life, I, I can't tell you. But when people tell me it does, I'm not going to doubt them because I've seen it. Well, if, uh, if you recognize that, then um, what can you do other than recognize it? Well, that could, can you, know, you solve the problem? Well, actually, no. It's, it's interesting you bring that up because um, I didn't go to the press. I was working. I, you know, I, don't, I went, I'm going to watch it online. But I did read a press release the, the day before. Yeah. And what often happens in politics is, and it's the famous you know, Rahm Emanuel, never let a crisis go to waste. People seize on situations and opportunities to try to push an agenda not directly related to it. There are definitely policy prescriptions we could do that would help alleviate some of the effects of sort of residual or, or systematic racism in society. For example, um, body cameras for all police is one of the things she had in her agenda. I was actually going to put a bill in in March because of the racial profiling incident I mentioned earlier. I was actually going to put a bill in and then the pandemic hit and I didn't get time to draft it up. Um, Body cameras protect the police. They also protect the citizenry because the police are going to act better. If someone is a bad police officer, they're going to get caught. Okay. Um, another thing that I have always pushed for is uh, civil asset forfeiture reform because that those laws get used to seize private property. And they're particularly hard hit on, on poor communities, both white and minority, by the way. But they're particularly harder hit on, on poor communities because they're, they're aimed at drug laws. So somebody, prime example. Uh, someone gets caught with drugs, you know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid, lives with his grandmother. They threaten to seize grandma's house, okay, or her car because that's where the drugs were. That's an abuse. But the police departments and the attorney general's office love it because it's a source of revenue. All right, those are two examples right off the bat. But those are concrete, specific things that can be done. On the other hand, uh, one of the things that, that um, Stash was pushing in her press release, and I just – she wanted to expand opportunities – for uh, employment for minority teenagers, which is good, and she wanted to raise the minimum wage. Those two things are directly contradictory because raising the minimum wage, and you can push for it and you can make arguments for why you should do it, but there's no question that raising the minimum wage makes it harder for businesses to hire people, particularly teenagers. That's a fact. So those are contradictory, and you know what does one necessarily have to do exactly with systemic racism? It, it, you see what I mean? You start to, the agenda starts to expand. So that's the answer to your question. So does she have a point? Do the protesters have a point? Absolutely. But how? what do you do about it? From a public policy perspective, it's a very complex question, and you have to look at specifics. You can't just talk in broad generalities, like racial justice. I don't even know what that means. Who's against that? No one's against that, but what does it mean? Actually, uh, this discussion is going to, uh, when we get back to normal, when and if, I think is going to be a big issue in the General Assembly because in watching those news briefings every day from the governor and uh, Rhode Island's newest politician, the health director, uh, Nicole Alexander Scott, they are saying that after the pandemic, uh, we are going to try to invest millions and millions of dollars into uh, zip codes or health equity zones. And uh, what's, what's happening is that the health director, and she may be right, I don't know, she is saying that besides the issue with the nursing homes, which is separate, the other issue uh, with uh, poor people and those who are uh, in Central Falls and Pawtucket and so forth, is that uh, they need better health care. They need better job opportunities. They need better housing. Somehow, it's got to be Equalize, says the health director. And if all these things were present already, if everything were equal, we would have had this problem in Pawtucket or Central Falls because um, they would have the same opportunities as Roger and Brian in northern Rhode Island. Uh, they, you know, we have a job and uh, we, we don't live in, uh, in dense, density housing and so forth. This agenda is making its way to your General Assembly next session when you can meet. Well, what do you, you know, think? It's, it's funny you bring that up because I understand the point she's making. 
But when you t- look, I'm not a doctor, but I don't think you need to be a doctor to know when you're talking about health policy and infectious disease that densely populated areas are always going to have are always going to be much more affected by infectious disease than outlying areas. That is nothing to do with race. That's density of population. Okay. Chicago to Montana. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, you know, how about how about uh, you know Rome or Florence during the Black Death? You know what I'm saying? I mean, pe- people get they get more sick in densely packed areas. Uh, now, of course, that brings up another question because a lot of urban planners trying to encourage people to live in more densely packed areas. That may change. I, I saw I saw somewhere that the real estate market in the suburbs has boomed because of this. Um, but she's right. I mean, one of the reasons why this disease has hit. The urban areas more is exactly that. That's not because of race, but because, at least in Rhode Island, and I, I don't know about the rest of the country, but in Rhode Island, our minority populations tend to be concentrated in more densely packed cities. So, ergo, correlation causation, right? Um, I don't think there's any question also. I mean, look at all the, all the d- debates in other states. And, and How about all the people from New York that try to move to their summer homes in Rhode Island, okay? If you're wealthy, you can get away, right? Poor people, they can't get away. So, that's also true. Um, but, you know, poverty, there's, no, there's always a link between poverty and health care that goes beyond just money, is my point. So. And it won't be solved by the next General Assembly session. I don't think it's the kind of thing that government can, quote, unquote, solve. I think government can do Ever certain solved? things to help. Yeah, government, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's a reason. That, you, you know my feeling about government generally. I'm part of the government because I think government should do less. So, yes. We have a caller. Your comment. Oh, wait a minute. Your comment, please. Um, good morning, Rep. How are you this morning? Good morning. Um, I should like to make a comment. First of all, um, what you were just talking about, the health equity zones um, that Dr. Nicole Scott has been talking about, that's all well and good. But when you try to do social engineering through legislation, oftentimes that doesn't help the situation but ex- exacerbates it. But the other and this is very political on her part, I believe. But the other observation I have is you, I've been listening very intently to what you've been saying this morning and also to what others have been saying, and it bothers me a great deal, and this isn't a personal criticism of you, that the General Assembly has not been in session and not been meeting and not functioning during this pandemic because if ever we needed our General Assembly to be active and communicate because you said this morning that um, Speaker Mattiello has not, you have not spoken to him in, 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 in months. Well, you know, it seems to me now is the time to be communicating. And I don't like the idea of a last-minute slapdash budget being put together without any communication beforehand. And it just it doesn't seem healthy or right to me. We're in a financial situation here, and I know you're aware of it. So that's all I want to say, that I, I'm not sure that the General Assembly as a whole has been responsible and responsive to our real needs. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Have you gotten any uh, criticism about not being in session well, no, other call, than uh, him? No, no, the caller is 100% right. And, in fact, I'll be clear about something, because you, know, you know I don't like to come on and talk partisan politics, Okay. No. About a week and a half into this, back in March, we, the House Republicans and the, House, the Senate Republicans, jointly called on the Speaker and the Senate President to set up so we can meet virtually. At the time, we didn't know how long it was going to last and so on and so forth or how bad it was going to be. We asked them to set up something so we can meet virtually or, if not virtually, meet maybe in the Dunkin' Donuts Center, you know, six, ten feet apart, whatever, so we could actually get back and start doing what we're supposed to be doing. We were rebuffed. We were ignored. We were told, oh, plans may be in place. Well, that was end of March, and here we are, first week of June. We're talking two and a half months, okay? We have repeatedly and publicly asked to go back into session to do exactly the kind of things the college has been doing. And this is not a criticism, Roger, of you or the press. The news has been uh, consumed with the virus. The news has been consumed lately with protests and riots and things like that. So things like what we've been doing kind of get lost. I get it. You know what I'm saying? But we Republicans, House and Senate, are 100 percent in agreement with the caller, and we have been asking to get back into session to address these issues. Um, so he's right. And why we haven't is because the Speaker and the Senate President obviously don't want to, and there's not enough Democratic members who, while they privately agree with us, many of them, that I know, are, they're not willing to publicly buck their leadership. That's so always been the problem. The maybe, Assembly, uh, maybe to really make me feel good about this visit today. Why do you think uh, 
the Senate uh, president and the um, House speaker actually uh, are not really trying to meet. Oh, that's an easy answer. I can't. First of all, I, I can't speak for the Senate president. I don't. I don't get involved in Senate politics. I can speak for the speaker. I speak for the speaker. I can well, tell speak, you why. Speak, please. Uh, because when we meet, um, the fractures within his coalition become more evident. Um, if there's ever been any proof that our General Assembly, and I'm, when I say the General Assembly, I mean the Democratic majority, and I'm calling the rank and file Democrats of the General Assembly, have are, are happy, maybe not happy, but they cede their power through the rules process to the speaker. It's almost like, why do we bother, right? Why don't just let the Speaker be the dictator of the House and do whatever he wants? Because that is effectively what he's been doing. You know the Speaker and the Governor have been talking. They don't like each other very much. We know they've been talking and communicating for the last few months, obviously, right? And he's content to let her take the political shots for the executive orders. You know, whatever she's been doing, good or bad, he's, he's happy to let her take the heat for that. Meanwhile, he doesn't have to worry. He doesn't have to make his members happy. He doesn't have Representative X from Town Y complaining about their bill to do this and such. He's got a great excuse to do nothing and just get through the next election. That's why we have been meeting. It's, it's clear as day to anybody that follows the place closely. Following that thinking, then, uh, then I don't expect uh, much to happen uh, in June or July. Well, no, I don't... <laughs> I would be very surprised if we meet, uh, other than to pass that budget mm-hmm. that I was talking about. And like yeah. I said, I'm not saying we're going to pass a budget because it's the right way to do it. I'm, telling you, I'm predicting what's going to happen, not saying I approve of it. Um, I, I don't think we're going to meet after that at all. I, I, I'd be shocked. Your final words? Any, uh, anything you, any final thoughts? I just, you know, the problem with this whole situation, this whole, this, these lockdowns and everything else, like I said earlier, people are willing to cooperate to do the right thing for the greater good of society if they believe the people making the decisions are acting in good faith and and trying to do it the right way. Um, And the longer this goes on, the double standards in terms of what's being allowed to open, what's not, it's eroding public confidence in government. I I saw that letter was signed by, I don't know, like a thousand scientists, epidemiologists saying that they were okay with the protesting, even though they're against congregating because the protesting is more important. People see stuff like that and they go, wait a second, who are these people? Why are they ruining the economy? I mean, there there are huge negative effects from these shutdowns and we're not going to appreciate them fully for years. People are going out of business. The despair, the depression, the, the psychic costs on our children, it, it is a horrible, crushing thing that we have been going through. It may well have been worth it, okay? But it's terrible. It's horrible. There are negative consequences. And if people don't believe that it was worth it, then if this ever comes back or something worse than this happens or some other serious national crisis, public health or otherwise happens – they are not going to have the confidence or the trust in their government leaders, and maybe next time it'll really matter, and they won't do it. And that frustrates me no end. And it, it's some people rise to the occasion in situations like this, and some do not. Um, in Rhode Island, eh, it's been a mixed bag. Okay, I, I'm not a huge fan of the governor on many reasons, but you know, I, I, I certainly criticize her for some things. But I, I think she has been trying to do her best. Some of these governors in other states are frankly clowns. And should be removed from office immediately if there was a recall provision. That's that's my point. Brian Newberry, District 48. Thanks for being with us. Anytime. This has been WNRI's Upfront, presented weekday mornings at 8 a.m. Upfront is a regular public affairs presentation of News Talk 1380. WNRI won't socket. Outside dining and inside dining is available at.